The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to continue our study um, on the church. So if you have one of the outlines, uh, some of the material is the same and there's some other that's been developed. And uh, so we'll pick it up. We're going to start on page seven in the outline. So if you would take and open up at the bottom. Uh, Last week we talked about the church. We are into the part of uh, Christian theology called ecclesiology from the Greek word ecclesias, which means the church. And so we're studying the church. Uh, One of the things, the reason that I wanted to zero in on this is that we continue to look at the doctrine of the church. Last night we had a good meeting with uh, a kickoff dinner with the deacons, and uh, one of the the issues that's in front of us is just looking at the issue of church polity, and polity is the way that the church is governed. Uh, What is the government of the church? What's the best way that the church would be organized for efficient leadership? I'll tell you this, in my time at seminary, we never really did much on uh, the study of the church. You know, you learn a lot of things in seminary, and and there's so much you can learn. But uh, I've really focused in the last five years especially on trying to understand the doctrine of the church because it is so important for us, so important for us to understand what the Bible teaches about the church. The church is God's instrument in the world for advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, and it's many other things besides. So I'd like to begin on page 7 with some of the different metaphors for the church that are in the Bible. Uh, metaphors are just words that help us to understand um, you know, uh, uh, something, understand some aspect of biblical truth. And so there's a lot of different metaphors listed. On the bottom of page 7, the first is that of the family. The church is like a family. In 1 Peter 4.17, it, it says, It's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, turn the page. On page 8, it says, uh, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. You know, First John uses this kind of analogy. If you're going to love the father, you have to love the child as well. And what that means is that uh, we can't just love God, but we have to love all of God's children as well. And that's referring to an extension of our love for the church, other believers in Christ. And so uh, the, the church is like a family. And then in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, uh, these are some instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy. And it says there, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. You see that? And then it says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So you see all the aspects of the family, father, mother, brother, sister, they're all in there. Frequently, uh, Christians will call each other brother or sister. Uh, actually, in, the, in, in Baptist history, that's kind of how they uh, spoke of each other, brother this and brother that. The pastor would be brother Andy, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, it really, there's a sense of, of family. And I, I was working on um, 
um, my sermon in Romans 16 in which Paul greets all of his friends there in Rome and he's just greeting them and he uses this kind of family language. And the foundation of this is really Jesus's own mentality. You remember how Jesus was teaching in a certain place and his mother and brothers come to take charge of him. You see, they think he's out of his mind. It's a kind of a low moment for Mary there. You know, Mary is a godly woman, but I think she's getting some bad information about what's going on with Jesus and she's concerned. So she and Jesus's brothers come to take charge of Jesus. What an interesting thought, coming to take charge of the, of the son of God as though there's something wrong, he's out of his mind, this kind of thing. Anyway, Jesus goes on with his teaching as the messenger comes, uh, says, your mother and brothers are here to to see you. And Jesus uh, answers, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Everyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus establishes that faithfulness to God, obedience to God, love for God, being in the family of God is a higher priority even than our biological attachments. And I think any of you who have non-Christian relatives, you can testify that you are closer to your Christian friends, Christian brothers and sisters, uh, than you are to your non-Christian relatives. And it's a sad thing, and we continue to pray for relatives that don't know the Lord, and we'd love to see the consummation or the perfection of that relationship, that they would not only be our brother or sister biologically, but actually brother and sister in Christ. And we yearn for that. We would love to see that. But I think apart from that, there's such a disconnect there. The worldview is so different. The whole approach to everything is different. On the other hand, you could meet somebody from an entirely different culture, somebody from a totally different country. You don't even know them at all. You could spend one hour with them and you immediately have a commonality, as long as you can understand each other. Okay, the language is, of course, an issue. But if you can talk to one another, there's immediately that bond through the Spirit. And so there's that sense of family. Okay, a second analogy is that of the bride of Christ. There's the marriage analogy, okay, the marriage analogy. Uh, Ephesians 5, talking about that whole chapter, that whole section of of Ephesians 5 talks about marriage. And then it, it says in Ephesians 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul here is quoting Genesis chapter 2, that great foundational verse which is talking about the invention of marriage. Adam and Eve, a man, a woman coming together, they're naked and yet they feel no shame and they, and they become one flesh. And uh, this is exactly what Moses wrote about. Jesus uh, quoted this as well. Uh, what God has joined together, let man not separate, Matthew 19. And here the apostle Paul takes it up, Genesis chapter two, frequently quoted at, uh, at weddings. But there it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is talking about marriage. But then look what Paul says after that. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. In other words, Paul takes marriage and elevates it to a theological uh, concept, namely that all marriages picture the union or the relationship between Christ and his church. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? The kind of uh, unity. I mean, uh, a wonderful marriage, uh, you know, a godly man and a godly woman coming together in a beautiful marriage. That is probably the best picture on earth of the relationship between Christ and the church. That's an incredible thought when you think about it. It also uh, shows you the significance of marriage, how important it is for a husband to love his wife as, a, as Christ uh, does the church and for the church to, or the, the wife to submit to the husband, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. But all I'm saying is that there's, a, there's an analogy here uh, of, of uh, marriage. Again, 2 Corinthians 11.2, uh, there Paul, the apostle, says this, and he's speaking to a local church. This is a very interesting thing. The Corinthian church was very talented. They, had, they, they didn't lack any spiritual gift. 
They had all kinds of abilities and even miracle working power and the speaking of tongues and, and all kinds of things were going on, but they also had all kinds of problems. And so he's writing two long epistles. First Corinthians has 16 chapters and then second Corinthians, he's continuing to deal with them. And so he's, he's dealing with this church, this local church, and he says this very interesting thing. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. You see, he's talking to a local church and he's using, again, this marriage kind of analogy. In this, he's almost playing the same role, let's say, as Abraham's servant who was sent uh, to Laban's family to get a bride for Isaac. You know, And I, I promised the bride, Rebecca, to, to my master and I need to bring her back safe and sound. And so the Apostle Paul is playing this role on behalf of Christ. I need to get you safely to the altar. That's what he's saying. And look at you, you're dabbling with things you shouldn't be dabbling with. And so he says he's jealous for that local church. There, again, is the, is the uh, marriage analogy. And then uh, in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And so this is clearly talking about the church. The saints are the, are the people of God, the believers. And they have lived a godly life. And there's this, this image of the, of the white linen as a picture of their righteous lives, the good, the good deeds that they did by faith in Christ, etc. But anyway, all of that is over now. The time has come for the, uh, the bridegroom and the bride to be joined together, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. You know how Jesus again and again in his teaching uses um, parables uh, that focus on this uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to prepare a wedding banquet for his son. And he sends out messengers and they, they uh, invite all these people to, to come to the wedding banquet. So again and again, we have this uh, bride of Christ analogy. You know, I, I think in this way, our sisters, the sisters in Christ have an advantage. I mean, it's hard for a man to think of himself as a bride, okay? But, uh, you know, uh, you know that's, that's the way it is. Taylor, is that hard for you to think of yourself in that kind of... Yeah, don't think too much about it. But anyway, it's, you know, it's, the idea is, is that he has loved us with this kind of love. Um, and he is the leader in the relationship. He is the initiator, and there it is. So, um, what's that? I make a beautiful you make a, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's not go there, okay? Let's just keep on going. You know, I'll be accused of teaching cross-dressing or some other weird thing. Okay, let's move on. Um, Another analogy of the church is that of, a, of an agricultural analogy, horticultural, let's say, um, the branches on a vine. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is this agricultural sense. Jesus uh, gives us that life-giving sap and it flows through us at all times. And we need to stay connected to him. We need to be, be connected as the, as the branches to the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So again, a picture of the church is branches on a vine. Another agricultural uh, analogy is a field of crops. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul the Apostle says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. You see that? You are God's field. So again, there's a sense of an agricultural. Paul's like a, a master farmer, and he, he's, he's an expert uh, agrarian. He knows how to do the work. And the, the, the church is a field, and there's, there's a harvest coming up. 
You know, I, I've, I've, uh, we were talking to the deacons and other ministerial staff and just looking at the, at the church, at this church, First Baptist Church, and, you know, there, our desire is to do all of the good works that God has in mind for us, uh, to be a fully kind of flowering or flourishing church. And so, for me, I think so much of it is just training godly lay people and empowering them to do their spiritual gift ministries in a beautiful way. There obviously has to be organization, there has to be leadership, but ultimately the church flowers in proportion to the, its, its people just doing their ministries. And so you get all different kinds of variety in a healthy church. You know, you think about a garden in which there's, you know, an orange tree or nectarines or, or you know, some broccoli or some beautiful flowers or whatever. And it's just, and to me, that's a healthy church. That's when those kind of things are just going beautifully. Of course, I didn't read the last word. It says, you are God's field, God's building. So there's another analogy. He just immediately changes from an agriculture to an architectural analogy. And so there's the idea of the church being like a building, uh, you know, something that's being built up or, or strengthened. Now, at the bottom of this page, we'll talk about the new temple, so I'm not going to go into this much. You know, the, the building analogy is one of, a, of bricks being put in place little by little. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, there's also this idea of a harvest. Jesus, uh, um, in the parable of the seed and the sower, and also the parable of the wheat and the tares or the weeds, uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, um, Jesus gives this analogy or this explanation in Matthew 13. Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. So Jesus sows good seed. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. All right. So we're like a harvest. You know, the good seed was planted in us and we're, we've come up. We're, we're a harvest. Another analogy is of the new temple built with living stones. If you could turn the page on page nine, Ephesians two has this analogy. Now, you know the temple was a major and important part of Old Covenant worship. There was the tabernacle. And uh, can anyone tell me the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? Yeah, uh, the tabernacle was what? What was it in effect, really? It was a tent. It was just movable. And it had to be because the law, the rules, the regulations for it were given while they were wandering in the wilderness. And it was going to be used much longer than they ever imagined um, because they had to um, wander for 40 extra years because they wouldn't believe the promise of God and go on into the promised land. Yeah, it was a tent, and it had to move around. But then once they were established in the promised land, God said in the book of Deuteronomy, he would choose a place from one of the tribes, and he would put his name there and establish that location as a place where the people would worship. And then David had the idea, you know, he said, here I am living in a palace of cedar, and God's still in a tent you know, et cetera. And the prophet Nathan comes and says, are you the one to build a house for me? Are you the one? That's no small thing to build a house for God. As are you the one to do that? He said, it's a good idea. All right. But actually what's going to happen is I'm going to build a house for you. You know, I'm going to raise up a son from your own body. It's such a powerful thing that's going on. Nathan, the prophet says this to David. And do you see what's happening? The immediate fulfillment is Solomon, David's son, built a physical temple. But who built the real house for God? Isn't it David's future son, Jesus, who builds a place where God will dwell by his spirit? We are the temple. We are the place where God's going to dwell forever and ever. We're going to dwell with God and he with us. And it's a beautiful analogy. But for, for centuries, that temple stood. For centuries, it was there until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. Then they rebuilt it in the book of Haggai. And for centuries more, it stood. Jesus himself prophesied that Herod's temple would be thrown down and not one stone would be left on another. And so it was when the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD and it's never been rebuilt. 
But uh, that temple stands in our memories. Uh, as we've read the scripture, we understand it's a place where people went to worship God. And when Solomon offered up the sacrifices and when he prayed that God would dwell there, the uh, Shekinah glory, the glory cloud came down and filled that place. And it was just an awesome display of the presence of God. But Solomon knew and he said this, but will God really dwell on earth? Heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built? That wasn't going to be the true resting place like so many things in the Old Covenant. It was just a picture of the final, beautiful, perfect spiritual reality. And what is it? What is the true temple? Well, it's us. We are the temple. And that's what Ephesians 2 teaches. It says, in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And then Peter takes up this same kind of uh, way of thinking. In 1 Peter 2, it says, as you come to him, Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that is a fascinating uh, picture. It's really hard to understand. So we are both the stones in the wall and also the priesthood that's offering up sacrifices. Yes, both, because there's just so much to the spiritual picture. First, you're a living stone. And as I've come to understand election and predestination, understand how God knows us by name even before we were born, I believe that it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle and you're the only living stone that could have fit in that place in the wall. And God has a blueprint and everybody on the face of the earth that he knows he's going to go get them. He's going to go send missionaries to get them. And until every single living stone is put in its wall, the building's not finished. But it's rising. It's, it's growing. And, and living stones that were put there 500 years ago, they're still there praising God, waiting for their resurrection bodies. It's just exciting, isn't it? And so little by little, the structure is rising and rising. And in the end, it's going to be a holy dwelling place. John says in the book of Revelation, I saw no temple. I saw no temple in the city. You know, for the Lamb of God is the temple. Kind of an odd thing. It's like, how is he the temple? And are we the temple, et cetera? Well, there's just such a perfect unity at that point between the people of God and Jesus. That's the place where we'll be together. So the temple analogy. Also, we are a new group of priests. You just see that, the priesthood, the fact that we are offering up living sacrifices. This is what some people call a, a Baptist ideal or identity issue. Um, but it's not just the Baptists who have read First Peter chapter 2. We are a, a spiritual priesthood. We offer up sacrifices. It's a beautiful thing. We offer up sacrifices by our prayers and by our praise, by our worship. Like it says in Hebrews 13, let us offer up a, a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Whenever you praise God, you honor him and give him thanks from the heart, through the lips, you are offering up a sacrifice to God. Every time you wake up in the morning and you have your quiet time and you present your body to him as a living sacrifice, you're acting in a priestly manner. Every time you lift up a brother or sister in Christ and you pray for them and your prayer ascends before God like, like incense, you know, coming in the bowls, the bowls of incense and the incense offered, it says in Revelation of the prayers of the saints, you are, you are acting in a priestly manner. Every time you do the good works that God's ordained for you to do, you're, you're carrying on your priestly ministry. And so we are a, a royal priesthood, as Peter calls us. It's just a beautiful thing. So we're a group of priests. The church is also a house, okay? A house. Hebrews 3, um, you know, in, in Hebrews uh, 1 and 2 and 3, uh, the author is establishing the supremacy of Christ. 
the exalted supremacy of Christ. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets, greater than the patriarchs. He's greater than Moses. So in Hebrews 3, he's talking about this. He says, now Moses, he was faithful as a servant in all God's house. But Jesus is faithful as a son over God's house. You see, Moses' servant, Jesus the ruling son, you see. And so he's superior to Moses. He's superior uh, in, in every way. And, and Moses would, would gladly assent to that. Moses just a servant in the house. But then the author goes beyond that and says, and by the way, you are that house. Do you see that? That's just an interesting thing. What do you mean you are the house? The people of God are the house. Now, you say, well, that's interesting. Why would he talk like that? We already learned in Hebrews chapter 1 that everything physical is going to be rolled up and thrown away and like a garment, it'll be, it'll be discarded and there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness, all the physical stuff's going away. There's going to be no permanent structure. Nothing physical is lasting. Nothing's going to make it through. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And therefore, there must be this new dwelling place, this new house where God will live and we are that house. That's what he's saying, Hebrews 3. Christ is faithful as son over God's house and we are his house if. You know, those ifs are always troubling, aren't they? Especially in the book of Hebrews. We are his house if what? Well, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast, if we have a faith that lasts to the end. That's what the whole thing, the whole letter is a letter of exhortation is to keep walking with the Lord and being faithful right to the end. But we are his house if we have a genuine faith. That's what he's saying. Uh, the church is also the pillar and foundation or bulwark of the, tr- of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, uh, Paul writing again to Timothy, young pastor, he wants to explain some things to him. And he says, if I'm delayed, you will know. He said, I'm writing these things. In the verse that precedes, he says, I'm writing these things so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So we already have the household analogy. We already talked about that. He says it's the church of the living God and then he calls it the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's a weighty role for the church to play. We represent the truth in the world. We stand for the truth. Now let me ask you a question. What does it mean that the church is the pillar of the truth? What does that mean? The long pause here means I'm hoping that somebody will say something. What does it mean? The pillar. How is the church the pillar of the truth? Uphold, so a pillar is something that upholds the truth. Okay, all right. What does it mean that the church is the foundation of the truth? Or bulwark would be a stronghold. Go ahead. Source of truth. Okay. Everything built on it, etc. That's right. We proclaim the truth. We proclaim Christ. We testify to Christ and to the gospel. Uh, but we also proclaim all the truth of God's word. We represent the truth. You know, I'll talk about an analogy here and a controversial issue. Controversial issue in our society right now is that, that we're debating over marriage. What is marriage? Over the last couple of years, this has become an increasing issue. And it wasn't long before I listened to national public radio and other kinds of things, and I realized they're lost in a sea trying to define something they cannot define without any absolutes. They can't. You know, 100 years ago, the Mormon church was ready to fight over the issue of polygamy. They were like an armed camp and, and the federal government had to go in and break them up and compel them. And one of the issues was the issue of polygamy. The American Constitution declared it illegal. Oh, that's coming back, friends. 
Because here's the thing. If you can't define it, then anything goes. Anything goes. I mean, it's really, you know, ultimately, if you reject the Bible, you reject absolute truth, you can't define marriage. You really can't. Um, we have to stand up for the truth and say, this is what the Bible says. And we have to say it as such. Not because, you know, studies have shown sociologically that children thrive best in this kind of one man, one woman commitment. Look, all of that's true, but that's not the point. The point is God invented marriage. He said so. This is the word, etc. Well, I don't accept the Bible. That may be well. And if you, if you say that you don't accept the Bible, you know, we'll have a hard time having a debate. We'll have a hard time having a discussion. And you will find what will happen in your life. But this is what God says. I think the church is at its weakest when it gets away from the Bible and just starts to argue biblical ideas from unbiblical foundations. We have to say, this is what the Bible says. This is God's word. This is what marriage is. So, Annie, Annie go ahead. That's a question from Randall's perspective. Yeah. I would assume that the Torah foundation of truth modifies church. Yes. Yes, it does. Yep. Yes. You know, you could, you could say, you know, God is the pillar and the foundation of the truth and nobody would argue with you. But in there, he's really focused on what is the church and how should you conduct yourself in the church. You know, and, and that's, that's an important verse on there's a way to conduct yourself in the church. You know, it's a good verse for parenting, you know. I mean, something as simple as running through the halls, okay? We don't conduct ourselves in God's, God's church there because it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. Yes, Daddy, I'm sorry. Won't do it again, you know, whatever. You have to discern how, how heavy to be about it. Well, the issue is that it's important how you carry yourself in God's household. But that's a very, very good question. Another analogy, of course, is a very familiar one, and that is the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 18, earlier in that chapter, it says, Now the body is not made of, of one part, but of many. And if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear wherever the sense of smell be. But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. Again, he's using human language. He's using earthly language to talk about a spiritual reality. We all have bodies. We have eyes. We have ears. We have hands and feet. We have mouths. And therefore, we can relate to this kind of thing. In that way, the church functions like a body spiritually. Now, that's a lot of metaphors, isn't it? Look at all the, all the different metaphors. Family, bride of Christ, branches on a vine, field of crops, a building, a harvest, a new temple, a new group of priests, a God's house, a pillar and foundation of the truth, the body of Christ. Now, you may wonder why so many analogies. Well, first of all, because the thing itself is complex and not just one of these analogies will work. And therefore, I think we have to take them all in and try to understand each one of them rather than say, you know, my favorite metaphor is this and I'm going to only think of the church in this way. We really need to take the whole thing in. It guards us, therefore, against misunderstanding of the church's significance and role. Also, it gives us a sense of the amazing, amazing richness of God's blessings and how lavishly God, a generous uh, God has been to each one of us. You take one of them and just meditate on it. For example, if you meditate on the whole bride analogy, especially that 2 Corinthians 11:2 verse, it would, it would uh, motivate us to strive for purity and holiness, wouldn't it? That we want to be, we want to be uh, pure and holy for our uh, wedding day, etc. And increase also our loving submission to our true husband, who is Christ. If you meditate on the metaphor of family, it increases our love and affection for each other. And a sense of the permanence of these relationships, right? You don't kick a, a brother or sister out of the family if they're having trouble. 
You know, now I know there is such a thing as church discipline. But one of the significant issues of church discipline is that the church is saying, we don't think you're a member of the family. That's in effect what's going on. It's like you're behaving like a pagan. And we, we're grieved over it, we're brokenhearted over it, but we don't think you're yet a member of the family because of what's gone on here, etc. So what we're saying is uh, the me- meditation on these metaphors um, heightens our awareness of what God has given us. And so we meditate on the, on the family and increase our love and affection for each other. Meditate on the branches. It, it would increase our, our sense of our need for Christ constantly, that we can't ever get away from him. We need him every moment and we need to be connected to him all the time. Or the agricultural crop, the need for constant growth and the desire of the farmers for, farmer for a good harvest and for proper spiritual nutrients. And Paul talks about it just in terms of humility. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it was God that made it grow. So don't be, so, don't be proud if you find God blessing your ministry and some growth happens around you. Just realize it's always God that makes it grow. So, so some humility comes from that. Uh, or of the new temple, a sense of God dwelling in our midst by the Spirit. Isn't that an awesome thing? Isn't it an awesome thing to meditate what it would have been like to see the Shekinah glory of God, the glory spirit cloud, whatever it was, come down and fill that place. So awesome that no one could enter that temple. That's an awesome thing. And if you had been there, you would have been on your face in amazement, worshiping God, a sense of the holy presence of God. That is just a picture and a small one at that of what's happened to you if you're a true believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit of God, the living God has come to dwell within you. That's an awesome thing, isn't it? And so the more you meditate on these metaphors, the richer it gets, the gospel, or the sense of the priesthood. Paul, in in Romans 15, says he had the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God to the Gentiles, right? It's a priestly ministry. All of you, if you're Christians, all of you have a priestly ministry. You minister as priests on behalf of God. And then the body of Christ, our total dependence on Christ. He's the head and we're the body, so he leads, we follow. Our mutual dependence on each other. The fact that there shouldn't be jealousy or boasting. One thing I've noticed, I started meditating in the body and sometimes I get these itches right between my shoulder blades. You know what I'm talking about? And you just can't get to it. That's why they invented back scratchers, you know? But I, I couldn't find a back scratcher and it was just painful for me. And so I forced my, my arm back right up, way into the center right here. And my shoulder was like, it was hurting. It was almost out of joint, you know, all of these things. And the servanthood of my left arm to just take care of that itch was just amazing to me. You're thinking, boy, you're weird. You have these kind of weird thoughts. What I'm thinking is that we ought to serve each other uncomplainingly. That's what the body does, right? If you're standing and the right leg is getting a little tired, you shift to the left leg and it'll take it for a while. You see what I'm saying? You know, you're holding something up, you sometimes shift. You've got a bunch of, you know, you'll, you'll move things around if one of the part of, parts of the body is getting weary. And you just, the body does it uncomplainingly. And you say, well, how, how could it complain? You don't have a brain in each part of your body. I know, but there's an analogy that the Lord upheld. The idea is we serve each other and each part has its function. So anyway, the point I'm making here is you meditate on all these things, you really get a sense of amazement at the, the church, the body of Christ. I love that song by Twyla Paris, How Beautiful. It's such a beautiful song on the church, isn't it? That really is a, a, a very powerful meditation on the whole bride picture. Very, very powerful. You could write a, a similar beautiful song for each one of these pictures, really, if you meditated on it. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. All right, well, let's talk about the relationship between the church and Israel. Okay? And here we come to an area of disagreement among evangelicals. Um, 
you know, there are some that follow what we call covenant theology and then others that follow what we would call dispensational theology. And there are Christians in both groups and they both love the Lord and they're both trying to be faithful to Scripture. They're both trying to understand things in a, in a right way. Just, there's a lot of points of difference though, but those points are not so much that, you know, we can't uh, both be in church together or whatever. There should be any kind of division. But when we sit down and talk about end time things or about the relationship between God and Israel and the future of Israel and all that, we might have some disagreements. But I, I do say that, that these are, are disagreements among people who have a good heart and who are trying to understand biblical truth in the right way. Dispensationalists make a strong distinction between the church and Israel. It's just a strong distinction between the two. Lewis Ferry Chafer's Systematic Theology argues that God has distinct and separate plans for the two different groups of people that he has redeemed. God's purpose and promises for Israel are for earthly blessings and they will yet be fulfilled on the earth at some future time. God's purposes and promises for the church are for heavenly blessings and those promises will be fulfilled in heaven. These differences will be especially obvious in the millennium. Israel will reign on the earth and the church will already have been taken into heaven during the secret rapture. This is all dispensationalist um, theology here. The church did not begin until Pentecost and it is wrong to see the church in Israel as constituting one body, one church. Now that's all right from Lewis Berry Chafer. This is not a characterization or a straw man of his teaching. This is what he teaches, etc. Um, others call themselves progressive dispensationalists. By the way, dispensation, that word itself means a different era in time in which God deals differently with people. Like he dealt differently with Adam and Eve before the fall. Uh, than he did after the fall uh, and he dealt differently after Abraham was called and then differently after Moses received the law and you're definitely in the old covenant and differently certainly after the you know Christ ushered in the new covenant and then on into the etern- the, um, the millennium will be a, a dispensation there'll be different era then as well uh, some dispensationalists uh, mark out three major eras some seven different dispensations etc and, and basically what it means is it's, a, it's an administration or a stewardship of a relationship between God and his people uh, that just runs by different rules. Like during one age, he does one thing and he, and he runs by different rules than at, at another time. Some dispensationalists will be careful to say that people are saved the same way all the way through. And they'll make that, that argument, but they'll just say that God deals differently with people at different eras. Which point I'm ready uh, to uh, acknowledge. They, that I mean, it makes sense even today. I mean... Let's face it, some of you could be commanded to do something that I'm not. And for you, that's the will of God. He's commanding you to go on a mission trip to such and such a place. And I'll pray for you, but I'm not commanded in that regard. You see what I'm saying? But at a much higher level, there could be a whole era in which the people of God are commanded to do certain things, and we're not. And I think that that is true as well. You look at David, and David was in the Old Covenant, and therefore he was commanded to do certain things that we were not commanded to do. Uh, Circumcision would be a good example. When David had a son, he had to circumcise him on the eighth day. If I have a son, I'm not spiritually required to circumcise uh, my son. I would not be disobedient to God if I didn't circumcise my son, like David would be disobedient to God if he didn't. You see, there's just different eras. That's how the dispensationalist approach works. But they go beyond all that to say that God always had a separate plan for Israel and for the church. Yeah. I think I would think a biblical biblical dispensationalists would never acknowledge that that god god never changes he's always the same his character is always the same he just changes how he deals with people 
and he's doing it in a very wise way. It's like he's trying to teach different lessons at different times. Kind of like if you had in high school seven different courses and you're just learning different things in each course. But all of that's from God, you know, chemistry as much as from English, as much as, as uh, mathematics or whatever. You're learning different things, but, you know, that's the approach. I, I'm trying my best to argue, you know, uh, in a way that I, I, don't, I don't believe it, um, but I don't consider it, you know, a serious breach. Uh, I, it does trouble me, the idea of, of, of um, the church and Israel just being on separate tracks, because I just see in Ephesians 2, the one new man out of the two making peace, and there's this dividing wall of hostility is gone, and there's... You know, but they have explanations for all of these verses. Let me tell you something. One thing about dispensational theologians, they're meticulously careful about everything in the entire Bible. It's not like they said, oh, I never read Ephesians 2. Well, there it is. I wish I'd read that earlier and I wouldn't be a dispensationalist. They're not, it's not like that. They do have explanations. They're saying that that's in the church age. There are some Jews that convert and become part of the church, and that does happen, etc. So, anyway, um, others call themselves progressive dispensationalists, modifying these strong statements somewhat but still teaching that the Old Testament prophecies will be fulfilled literally in the millennium by ethnic Jews who will believe in Christ and live as a model nation in the promised land. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what to think about the millennium and about the Jews and the future, the physical promises and all that. I think it's not easy. I, I, can, I can acknowledge that, you know, I, I, I find some, a lot of mysteries. You know, like, for example, when God said to, uh, to Abraham, to you and to your offspring, I'll give this land forever. Huh. The offspring I get, it's the to you part that I struggle with, right? And and if you think for a minute, God just kind of slipped the tongue or he didn't really mean it or something like that, or there's some other way, that's not God's manner. Every word is carefully measured out. And so when God says to you, Abraham, I will give this land forever, that's a significant thing. I tend to think of it in terms of the new earth that's coming in the future and that there will be a Palestine and that Abraham will be there. And I, I look forward to that. You remember that whole moment when Abraham and Lot's uh, shepherds were quarreling because there wasn't enough grazing land and, and they wanted to separate and Lot took the good chunk of land down there by that fertile area called Sodom and Gomorrah, which was fertile at that point. It was a really good-looking place. And off he goes and there's Abraham standing and you know he was the older and the... And the should have, you know, been the one to make the decision, but he yielded to Lot. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, in effect, don't worry about it. You're going to get it all anyway. You know, basically you're going to inherit this land. And so that's a powerful thing. Anyway, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, <clears throat> different ways that dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists may uh, look at those verses. Turn the page on page 11. If you look at a key passage, um, one of the key passages on the relationship between the church and Israel is this idea of the olive tree. Uh, Romans chapter 11, which I preached through. It's not an easy passage of scripture, but basically Paul's using an analogy, agricultural again. You've got an olive tree growing up. The olive tree are the people of God. It's a Jewish tree. It's, it's just a Jewish tree. And the roots of the olive tree are the patriarchs, the call of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How many times do you hear that tree at? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, your father, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this kind of thing. So they're the roots, okay? And that's where the tree kind of, uh, grows up and then he's speaking to the gentiles in romans 11 and he's urging them not to be arrogant but to pray for and be concerned over jews who have not come to faith in christ the analogy paul uses there is of branches that have been stripped off of their own olive tree and they're laying on the ground and then we gentiles have been been taken out of some wild tree and and sliced off and then grafted in to this jewish tree and now there's sap flowing through our branches and we've become 
children of Abraham. What an odd thing. But that's what's happened. He says, you've become Jews, basically. And, and so you are the children of Abraham, it says in Galatians 3. And, and it uses this analogy. And, and Paul speaking, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. You know, and all this, he's, there's just a whole change in the whole Jewish way of thinking. He says, we are Gentiles grafted into a Jewish tree. That should humble us in reference to the Jews because we're deriving sap from a Jewish root system. And so we do. You're reading a Jewish book. The Old Testament's a Jewish book. The New Testament's a Jewish book. I mean, I, I don't know. I think Luke is the only Gentile author that I know of in the whole Bible. I may be wrong, but he's it. You know, Nebuchadnezzar has a section of Daniel, Daniel 4, so he's in there. Um, but, you know, parts here and there. But, I mean, it's a Jewish book that we're reading. And I derive tremendous, tremendous benefit from that. Jesus said it openly. He said, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. There it is. That settles it. Jesus said it. He was Jewish. Uh, There it is. But not only was he Jewish, the oracles are Jewish. The prophecies are Jewish. The prophets and the apostles, they're Jewish. So we are grafted into a Jewish tree. That's what he's getting at, etc. There's a unity there. Many passages use... Uh, Jewish language for church and Gentile believers. Romans 4, uh, 11 and 12, it says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. Who would they be? Who are those who believe but have not been circumcised? Those are Gentile believers. And he, Abraham, is their father. That's an amazing thing. I'll make you the father of many nations. That's a beautiful thing. And God was faithful to that promise. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had while he was sti- before he was circumcised. Who is that? Who are the ones that are circumcised, but who are not only circumcised, they also walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised? Those are believing Jews. And Abraham is their father as well. That's what he's getting at. And then later in that same chapter, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who have the law, but to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations, etc. Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 6.15 and 16, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Now, there's lots of different interpretations of that passage. But one of the simplest interpretations is the Israel of God equals or is defined by the people who understand that what counts is a new creation. See what I'm saying? That's the Israel of God. If you know that you need to be created by the Spirit, you need to be born again, and you have been born again, you've come to faith in Christ, you are a new creation, you're a Christian, you're a believer. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or not. Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter. What matters is, do you, did you receive the new creation? And if so, you are the Israel of God. Mm. That's a tough verse for a dispensationalist. They look at that and they say, there's got to be a distinction between Israel and the church, etc. So these verses all, all show the unity of purpose that God has now in the new covenant. And there's one work he's doing. Dispensationalists basically are saying God's working along two tracks. You know, he's, he's still got these promises for physical Israel, etc. Um, other passages deny the claims of unbelieving Jews to be children of Abraham spiritually. 
um, basically, uh, the, I'll tell you, Romans 9 is, is one, of the, uh, one of the hardest ones. It says, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Ouch. You know, he's saying, just because you're physically descended from Abraham doesn't make you a child of Abraham. You know? And it says, nor because they're his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Do you know who Paul is comparing unbelieving Jews to there? Who is Paul comparing unbelieving Jews to in Romans 9 right there? Ishmael. They're like Ishmael. They're just physically descended, but nothing else. You see, they're not children of the promise. They're Ishmael. Or they're Esau. That's what they are. That's what he's doing there in Romans 9, etc. All right. So, do you have any questions about Israel and the church? Any, you know. Say again? What is the rationale I really can't answer you, brother, because I, need, I, I would need to do more work on dispensationalist thinking. As I said, they are careful theologians. They have basically taken a hermeneutic of literalism. They want to take every word in the Bible just as it's written. You know, They want to just take it and look at it and just accept it as it's written, and, they, and they've extended that into uh, a theology, dispensationalism. So I really just have to say I don't know. Um, that they have an answer, I have no doubt that they've looked at Romans 9 through 11. Let's keep going. Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. Two in a row, I have to say, I don't know. Okay, I just don't know. Um, I would say that, the, that probably the majority of Bible-believing American evangelicals tend toward dispensationalism and Arminianism. I, I think that's probably the majority of them. You know, if you if the whole Left Behind series and all that that's coming up out of this this way of thinking, etc. Where is the church? Where is the church in Left Behind? Gone. I mean, do you ever? I mean, do you, any of you re- read the books or look at it? Do you, you know, the Secret Rapture and all that kind of thing. The church gone. Every all the true believers are gone. They are taken away. They leave behind their pacemakers and their fillings on the pillow and their, and the, all this stuff. They just anything man made. They are gone. And and what's left are the unbelievers. And then God has his two witnesses and some other people that come to faith in Christ and then it grows again and, and they are the tribulation saints and all that kind of thing. Boy, I'll tell you, it's exciting and it's elaborate and it's well thought out, but is it right? That's the question you have to look at, etc. All right, let's talk about the church and the kingdom of God. Is there a relationship between the church and the kingdom of God? Well, there must be, there better be. What is it though? George Eldon Ladd put it this way, the kingdom is primarily the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God or derivatively, the spheres in which the rule is experienced. Let me put it in my own words. The kingdom of God is a place where God reigns. It's where he rules, where he's in charge. And it includes people who are glad about that and who gladly submit to that by faith. So the kingdom advances whenever somebody repents and comes to faith in Christ. When, when somebody listens to Matthew 11, in which Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, I, I believe with all my heart, the yoke there is kingly authority. I can, I can prove it from the Old Testament. You know, the yoke of the king of Babylon, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar is across their neck for 70 years and all this kind of thing. It's just there are many times that the whole word yoke relates to kingly authority. Could it be in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus might be talking a little about the kingdom? The, the Gospel of Matthew is all about the kingdom. Right from the very beginning, the genealogy establishes Jesus' right to be the king. The parables are all the kingdom of heaven is like blah, blah, blah. So therefore, I think king, kingship is always in Jesus' mind and in Matthew's mind as he's writing. 
And so when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You say, well, what's the rest like? What kind of rest? And what do you mean come to me? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take that stiff neck of yours and bow it down under my yoke and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was talking to somebody and said, I don't want to put my, my neck under anybody's yoke. I want to be my own man. I said, you don't have that option. You just don't. Your neck will be under somebody's yoke. There are two yokes. You can be under Satan's yoke or you can be under Jesus. There are only two options. And you could say, well, I don't want either one. You can say that all you want, but that's if you are thinking like that and living in rebellion against God, you are serving Satan and flesh and sin and all that. It's just, that's the way that leads to death. I would much rather have my neck under Jesus' yoke, wouldn't you? But when you have taken and submitted to his kingly reign, you are in the kingdom of God. He is your king. He is your Lord. Think about uh, the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Wow. <laughs> well, who are you? He's not asking that. <laughs> this glorious, radiant, shining resurrection power is there and it's Jesus, the resurrected one. He's the son of God. Does he have the right to tell him what to do? You better believe he does. Does he have the right to tell you what to do? Yes. Are you glad about that? And if you can say yes from my heart, I am glad about that, then you're in the kingdom of God. It's the place where, where people gladly submit to Christ's kingly reign. That's the kingdom, okay? So what's the relationship between the kingdom and the church? Well, in biblical idiom, this is Ladd's definition, in biblical idiom, the kingdom is not identified with its subjects. They are the people of God's rule who enter it, live under it, and are governed by it. The church is the community of the kingdom, but never the kingdom itself. Jesus' disciples belong to the kingdom as the kingdom belongs to them, but they are not the kingdom. The kingdom is the rule of God. The church is a society of men. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's obviously a relationship between the two. But the kingdom is just the rule of God. It's God's sovereignty. It existed before any of us were here. He was king before any of us were made. So the church is not the kingdom because Jesus didn't go around preaching that, that the church was near. Repent. Uh, and believe the gospel because the church is near. He's not preaching the church. He's preaching the kingdom, right? The kingdom creates the church because as people enter God's kingdom, they become joined to the human fellowship that is the church, right? So you get the idea the church is down here and the kingdom's at a higher level. We'll still be in the kingdom when to some degree you say we don't need the church anymore. We're going to be perfected in heaven, etc. The church is a, is a fellowship of the saints here in this time. The church witnesses to the kingdom for Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So we witness to the kingdom, the church does. The church is the instrument of the kingdom for the Holy Spirit manifesting the power of the kingdom works through the disciples to heal the sick and cast out demons as he did in the ministry of Jesus. So he's using the church to advance the kingdom. That's going on. And the church is the custodian of the kingdom for we are given the keys. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 16, 19, okay? This is not an easy concept. If you're not really fully understanding, don't sweat it too much. Basically, what I'm saying is the kingdom is wherever God rules and reigns over all things. All right, the church is under that and comes into it. It is the earthly society that represents that kingdom, etc. All right, let's talk about the marks of a true church. All right, the marks of a true church. And in order to, to get into this, we have to embrace the concept that there is such a thing as a false church and a true church. There are false churches. Have any, any of you ever worshipped at a, at a place that called itself a church and you walked out of there saying, that was no church? Has that ever happened? Yeah. What was that like? 
<laughs> well, what made you think as you're walking out? That's not a church. You know? Pastor was asking for more lectures in the church. Okay, so there's a health and wealth thing going on there, maybe. Yeah, that was okay. the first fruit. Okay, <laughs> all right. So the the wealth aspect of it. Anybody else? I saw the liturgy and comfort that God is God and Christ are never there. Okay, so you are at a church where there's a liturgy and all that. And yeah. a long time ago, I walked up to the church on Easter Sunday because. I was visiting town town. I thought it was one thing or another, and the pastor got up and started talking about a very different kind of resurrection. Oh. Jesus really can rise from the dead. And, you know, he started doing this debate. What a downer on Easter Sunday morning. It's like, you mean he really didn't rise? I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, John, what were you going to say? Yeah, we uh, one time went to a church that we'd never been to before, and uh, we had a situation. Oh boy. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've already started to get into some of the ways you know, and it has to do with the doctrine and, and all that. Um, but, you know, I think it's good for us to know what a true church is, and not just so that we can walk out or never walk in, but so that this church can be faithful and true uh, to what it means to be a true church. And also because in our church covenant, it does say that, you know, when we leave this place, that we'll join with another church to carry on the spirit of this covenant, right? So one of the things we have to do uh, in service to our members is to help you be discerning, to help you be discerning about what kind of church you're looking for, et cetera. All right, but here we're speaking a little bit more, uh, a little bit more broadly. Um, not every church is a really strong and healthy church, but could still be a church, you know what I'm saying? You look at the letters to the churches in Revelation, Revelation uh, 2 and 3, and, and two of the churches, Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. One was the church at Smyrna and the other the church at Philadelphia. The Smyrna church uh, was persecuted and the Philadelphia church seems like it was a faithful church. But every other church, Jesus has something negative to say, if not nothing but negative things to say, like um, the church at Laodicea. So at any rate, is it still a church? That's an interesting question. All right. What are the marks of a church? How do we really know? And, and what if a group that claims to be a church doesn't possess those marks? Are they really a church? Now, obviously, in early church history, there's only one Christian church. It was, uh, you know, worldwide with bishops and practicing excommunication and all that. That's what there was. After the Reformation, there was a multiplication of Christian groups, okay, denominations and all kinds of, you know, you know how many different Baptist denominations there are? I don't know is my answer. I don't know. Dozens, maybe, maybe hundreds. I'm not talking churches. I'm talking denominations. You know, all of them basically are essentially Baptistic, but it's just amazing, the proliferation. I bet you whole denominations have split over colors of the carpet or whatever, and then they established it in a doctrinal position or something like that. I have no idea. I, I think it cannot be that there are a hundred different Baptist denominations. That's ludicrous, you know? But at any rate, there's this whole flowering. So this question is very germane after the Reformation. How do we know what the true church is? Furthermore, the reformers would turn and look back at the Roman Catholic Church and say, is that a true church? You know, in uh, uh, the movie, A Man for All Seasons, Sir Thomas More is a Catholic uh, man and leader, and um, his son-in-law, Will Roper, uh, is having a debate with him. And Thomas More says, Martin Luther was declared a heretic. And Will Roper said, yes, by a heretic church. 
you know? So that's therein lies the rub of the Reformation. Was the Roman Catholic Church a true church, etc.? So these are the questions that we're asking. And so in the New Testament, we have a sense as there were false synagogues, so there must be false churches. Were there false synagogues? Jesus said so. Uh, I know the slander of those who say there are Jews but are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. And so the idea there is that there can be false um, uh, churches. So Reformation, Luther and Calvin both basically said this about um, what a true church is, the Augsburg Confession. Lutheran Statement of Faith in 1530, um, the church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. Okay, so what are the two things he gives there, two marks of a church? What does he say? Sacraments and the word. He specifically focuses on the gospel, or the Augsburg Confession does. The gospel is rightly preached and the sacraments are administered, okay? John Calvin said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. There is, it is not to be doubted, uh, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So he's got the word of God generally. He doesn't say the gospel, but the word of God generally preached, rightly preached, and the sacraments administered. Now, I think both Luther and Calvin talk about the sacraments because the sacraments were so huge in the Roman Catholic theology. That's how you got saved. It was a sacramental system. And so in effect, he said, they said, we need the sacraments rightly administered, etc. Okay? In the Roman Catholic view, the visible church that descended in an unbroken line from Peter and the other apostles, that is the true church. All right? So, you know, the question we have to ask is, all right, if you accept Luther and Calvin's, you know, idea, the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments, other groups added the right practice of church discipline, etc. The question we have to ask then is, how much bad doctrine can you teach and still be a church? Okay? I mean, really. I mean, wouldn't we have to say every church is a little bit off doctrinally? I mean, it must be. I talked about this last week. There's no pastor that teaches nothing but perfect doctrine. And how do we know that? We, we just know because it's flowing through, uh, through uh, rusty pipes, through sinful people. You know, and we're not perfect. We're not sanctified perfectly yet. And therefore, we're going to have errors of judgment and of exegesis. So how do we know how much bad doctrine is tolerable and still, still, uh, still be a church? The Mormons, they have an interesting doctrine of salvation, don't they? They have an interesting heritage and all that. Are they a true church? Well, I think not. Why? Because they attack the central doctrines of the deity of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. All right, what about the Jehovah's Witnesses? They deny that Jesus is uh, truly the uh, Son of God. Uh, Grudem said this, when the preaching of the church conceals the gospel message of salvation by faith alone from its members so that the gospel message is not clearly proclaimed and has not been proclaimed for some time, the group meeting there is not a church. Okay? I think that was my experience in the Catholic Church. I think I didn't hear the gospel clearly explained once in all those years. Not clearly. So I, that's where we start looking at, you know, uh, what is a, a true church. Um, conversely, if you come to a street corner and you hear a street preacher rightly preaching the gospel and he's surrounded by 50 people and they're listening and you say, boy, this guy is solid. And the longer you listen, you think he's an excellent evangelist. Is that a church? 50 people around a street preacher who's rightly preaching? Why not? Why do you say no? They don't come together regularly, okay? Uh, they, they haven't covenanted together to be a church. 
They might all be gone and never meet each other again after the preaching's over. That's not a church. All right, we're going to talk uh, more about this next time, and uh, we're going to talk some about uh, Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Let me close in prayer. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for this evening, the time we've had tonight to be together. And I ask, Lord, that you would please bless to our understanding the ideas that we've had. Help us to understand the Bible when it comes to the doctrine of the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.